be sure to welcome our, our guest, uh, Sergio Espana. We're so uh, uh, glad that you're here. He's the Director of Engagement and Mobilization at the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU of Maryland. Uh, before coming to the ACLU, he worked at the Annie E. Casey Foundation, where he focused on community organizing to empower families of color to achieve higher wages and better education for their children. Previously, Sergio has worked on establishing a statewide campaign here in Maryland for universal health care that helped connect uh, rural and urban communities to recognize that we're all in this together. Some of the themes you're seeing about solidarity that he's going to be talking with us um, later. Uh, across differences. Uh, Sergio has been a Maryland resident since, uh, resident since 1999. That's pretty good, right? You've been, you've been here a bit. Uh, and was a double major in philosophy and sociology. You should have been here last week. I did a little philosophy thing, so yeah. All right, very good. Uh, philosophy and sociology at the University of Maryland. He was born in Los Angeles and also spent several years with his family in Guatemala. Any of you that have been involved with the RISE Coalition for Immigration Justice here, uh, Sergio was also very instrumental in getting that uh, started. So I'm looking forward to uh, Sergio's sermon on wisdom, comfort, solidarity, coalitions for collective liberation. So for this spoken meditation, I want to set the stage by talking about a few of the historical reasons why we do or don't often end up working together across differences. And as I do so, I encourage you to reflect on what has this looked like in various stages of your own life, in your childhood, your young adulthood and your adulthood, you know, what has caused you to be together and working to pe together across differences and what has kind of kept you apart and maybe with more uh, similar people. There's so many places we could, could begin this story, but I want to use as one representative example of widening our circles to shift from competition to coalition. Uh, starting in the 1960s, uh, if you look at second wave feminism, this tremendously important movement for gender equity in our society was amazing, but then our collective awareness began to be raised over time that even the, the awareness that second wave feminism was doing among men wasn't enough because second wave feminism uh, was primarily centering the liberation of white women. And one influential turning point that's still very much worth going back and reading is called the, the Kambahi River Collective Statement of 1977. Has anyone actually read that? I'd be, okay, I see a hand or two, very good. Uh, it's written by black lesbians, kind of reflecting on second wave feminism. And that was significant progress, but as the work continued, awareness grew further that our coalition building needed to expand further still to include the experiences and the perspectives of non-Western women, of Latina and Chicana women, of Asian women, of women with disabilities, and more to help call attention to the ways that different um, groups and people experience uh, reality in the world and this work differently. The legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw uh, coined the really important and powerful term intersectionality. How many of you have heard the word intersectionality? That's, a, that's real different than a few years ago. A lot fewer of us would have heard that term, even though she coined it in 1989. She said, consider the analogy to a traffic intersection. When you think of intersectionality, she had a traffic intersection in mind. Traffic coming and going in four or more directions. Discrimination is like that. It can flow in one direction. It can flow in another. Uh, if an accident happens at an intersection, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions, sometimes from all of them. 
So similarly, if a black woman is harmed because she's at an intersection, her injury could result from sex discrimination, it could be race discrimination, it could be both, and then we can add in if someone's a lesbian, a person with disabilities, like you can have all these different, that's intersectionality. Now, maybe this point seems pretty obvious in retrospect, but I'll say as a white dude raised in South Carolina, it was a revelation to me when I started reading the work of black lesbians like Audre Lorde, her important book, Sister Outsider, to, and began to learn about some of what it's like to live every day at the three-way intersection of racism and sexism and homophobia. At the same time, I don't want us to miss the crucial point that for those of us on the more privileged end of of the intersection of the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, as Bell Hooks called it, yes, there can be advantages, but I don't want us to miss this. There can also be so much pressure to conform, to fit in, to repress any differences that even as a straight, able-bodied white male I might have, to, to keep those down. I've actually found a lot more fun and freedom over at the intersection of collective liberation, where we actually all get free. Uh, Have any of you read Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us? That book is also, I think, incredibly insightful about all the things we've denied ourselves as a society because white people didn't want people of color to have access to them. Like, we've just made our whole society worse uh, because we, so that, that's again what collective, we can all have nice things if we let all of us have nice things. So how do we find our way toward collective liberation? Well, Sergio is going to share in a few moments about some of his real on-the-ground experience doing community organizing. And I just want to briefly uh, share five practices that all of us can do to help move us toward collective liberation. This is from a book by the UU activist Chris Crass, a book called Toward Collective Liberation. He said, one, start by reading activist writers who are female. Read Audre Lorde. Read Gloria Anzaldúa, read Suzanne Farr, read Angela Davis, read Barbara Smith, read Elizabeth Petita Martinez. Study social movements and organizing experiences that are led by women. Look back at the life of Ida B. Wells, of Abby Kelly, of Septima Clark, of Ajahn Poo. That, those, that these names I've been listing so far, to, to the extent they are unfamiliar and not household names, is yet another sign of who's been controlling what we, what we learn and who's been deciding what's important to learn about. Learn about the current struggles in our community or the communities where you live and look for opportunities to get involved. Get involved with the RISE Coalition if you want to work for immigration justice. Uh, See what ARCH is doing around African-American history. Get involved with I Believe in Me, the wonderful work Ajay Hill is doing. Practice noticing who's in the room at meetings and events and who isn't, what diversities are present and which aren't. And be aware of ways you might think you are always needed. Struggle with this saying, you will be needed in the movement for collective liberation when you realize you in particular are not needed in the movement for collective liberation. As the proverb says in in the movement for Aboriginal rights, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because you finally realize that your liberation is actually bound up with my liberation, then let's work together. That's collective liberation. Dr. King said it this way. We are all caught in this inescapable network of mutuality. We are tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all of us indirectly. That's why we need collective liberation. We're really not free until all of us are free. 
King said, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. For now, in the minute of silence to follow, I'll I'll leave you with these words and invite you to reflect on them uh, from Peter Morales, who was the first Latino president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. Peter said, I'm a recent UU, but I would have, and this is as the president, right? He said, I actually would have been a UU 20 or 25 years ago if someone had invited me and welcomed my family. You know, who do you need to invite here? Not to you know, coerce them, but who, we don't want to be the best kept secret in Frederick, who would actually find this place to be good news. And Peter was like, I would have been here two and a half decades ago if someone had invited me. My dream for Unitarian Universalism is that we confess we do not have all the answers. We need to admit that this is hard work, this work of anti-racism, anti-oppression, multiculturalism, being together in this big tent across our differences. It is as rigorous a spiritual discipline as we will encounter. We not only have gifts to give each other, we are gifts to each other. Our journey toward wholeness has just begun, has just begun, and we're not sure of the way. We're not sure how to get to where we want to be, right, to this beloved, multicultural, beloved community. We've often lost our way in the past, believing our destination was in sight and easily reached. We were a bit arrogant and a bit naive. We're wiser now. We know we'll not get there soon, and we know we need to walk together and walk humbly. But come, let's get started. Come, veneer. Let's make the journey together, juntos, one step at a time, paso por paso, walking hand in hand, mano a mano. Let's leave no one behind. Together, let's go. Come. Good morning. Twenty years ago, if you had asked my teenage atheist self that I would be providing a sermon at a church, (laughs) uh, I would have told you you have another thing coming, uh, and I would not have taken you seriously at all. Now, I am extremely genuinely, like, I'm I'm being moved right now. I'm I'm extremely grateful to be here, because it it feels like it's, in many ways, come in full circle, um, because I know so much of what's led to me being here has been faith. And frankly, more than anything else, has been faith in people. It's been faith in the folks that would participate in the Unitarian Church uh, and a variety of different faiths and non-faiths. What I want to talk to you today is going to be um, focused on, you know, my experience and how I've been able to work with folks from across the political aisle, um, different faiths, religions, class, and what I have seen us accomplish because of that, not because it's like something to consider, it might look good, but like literally power was built, lives have improved because of that. Um, I also want to, and that, now I'm going to be a little redundant just because, um, again, so much of what I'm going to be sharing is, reflects uh, the teachings of the Unitarian faith, and also frankly because I'm seeing a lot of faces that have been with me in protests in the street, at City Hall, at County Council, and so on, so... Y'all gonna get a pretty good sense of what I'm talking about already. But um, I wanted to start by sharing a little bit about my background and how it came about. As Reverend Carl shared, uh, I was born in Los Angeles, and when I was four years old, my mother passed away from leukemia. My father you know, was a single father at that point with two kids, working a minimum wage job, 
And so we moved from where we were in LA to um, a, a small house right on the border between Linwood and Compton. And you know, I, I thought everything, everything was great. Majority black and brown community. All of us got along fantastically. It just felt like this is just what life is. Um, occasionally, there wouldn't be toilet paper in the schools, or you know, we, were, <laughs> we wouldn't have lunch. But I guess that's just how school worked, or so I told myself, so we told ourselves. And then uh, in 1992, uh, the, the Rodney King uh, uprising took place. And I was, my, my sense of self, my sense of community um, changed like that, where I went from recognizing that all of us, there's some sort of shared sense of this is how we all live our lives, towards very quickly realizing that there are a few folks with a lot of tanks that want to make sure they know uh, and that we know that uh, we're not all the same and that we need to know our place. Uh, it was a very, very terrifying week that also, um, I, I think, really lit a spark with me. My father spent the, the remaining eight months you know, saving up money to get a, my brother and I flights to move to Guatemala because he thought that we'd be safer in a third world country during a civil war than we would be uh, in Compton. <clears throat> so we did, and he was right. We, my brother and I moved to live with uh, my grandfather and, and my uncle, um, and very quickly, uh, within a couple of weeks, I noticed uh, just this shift where I had gone from starting to see myself as poor, as brown, as lesser, all the things that our country here in the US keeps going out of its way to keep trying to trick us into believing, um, to now being tricked into recognizing that I'm actually white. <clears throat> I'm middle class. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, like uh, folks are supposed to you know, work for me. We have an, a, a Mayan woman, Elvira Marroquin, who lives in our household and is going to always take care of us, and she's a servant, and that's just the way it is. And very quickly, like, there's this massive shock where I, where I realized how arbitrary things are. I was the same person I was in California as I was and continue to be now. But because of the circumstances, because of the, the different privilege networks and so on, I started to think differently. And I started to see, and also because of my family, I started to think about the importance of protecting that. My family was very, very religious, continues to be, very evangelical. Um, I had, uh, my grandfather actually was a contractor for the military in Guatemala, helped to provide food for folks who then went out and did some pretty horrible things to the indigenous community. And uh, our church constantly talked about the importance of protecting ourselves from the other. <clears throat> and I just remember that being such a conflict with what I learned at Sunday school at that same church every week, where we learned directly about uh, the, you know, the teachings of Jesus, um, the, the, the gospels that emphasize that real strength lies in being there for each other, in sharing what we have, in protecting the dispossessed and ourselves. And so I would get these lessons at Sunday school and then come back to hear from our uh, you know, pastor um, who was, a, a, the, I think, the only white person in the church, he was the uh, missionary, uh, telling us that we needed to actually uh, focus on 
hoarding resources because on June 6, 1996, that's close enough to 666, the end of the world is going to come. Yasser Arafat is going to come together with uh, poor Mayans trying to just make sure that they are able to hold on to their land, and it's going to be horrible. I was there that night um, along with hundreds of people at the church. Nothing happened. <clears throat> but something did in, in, in my heart and in my soul because I realized that what I was being taught there was so much truth to it, but how it was manifested uh, through other folks who had access to the mic was almost the antithesis of what I was also learning. And so that unfortunately led to me, uh, you know, having a, a crisis of faith and, and, and spending several years trying to figure out how to reconnect with it. Um, and then I moved back to the States in 1999. By then, my uh, father was doing construction in Montgomery County, had enough money to pay for flights for us to return. And I moved to Germantown, Maryland. And I remember coming back and being so grateful because it looked like we had done it. <laughs> you know, while I was gone, everybody came together. <laughs> you know, because it, it's extremely diverse. My middle school, my high school, it was folks from all walks of life, all different communities, all different languages. Um, I spent middle school and high school with our you know, friends. Sometimes we'd hang out in an apartment, uh, a mansion, a McMansion, a townhouse. It didn't matter. We all got along. And I just genuinely remember being so grateful uh, for what that, what that felt like. Then um, we had the September 11th attacks. And I noticed how Within a week, so many of my friends stopped hanging out with each other. Uh, we would start talking about, you know, a friend of ours that we were just, we were just, you know, playing Mario Kart with, but now we were worried, what if they're up to something? And then I remember also hearing in the news about how we need to start thinking about war, you know, and how to respond. Um, one of the few movies that I was allowed to see while I was in Guatemala was Forrest Gump. And so, and so when, when uh, protests started to happen in 2001, I realized, okay, that's what you do. You know, it's, you, you go out, you go to the streets, and if you go in enough circles, like the walls of Jericho, the, you know, war and conflict will end. And so I started to, to participate in that. I was able to organize with uh, several of my friends at Seneca Valley High School, some of the first walkouts, uh, get you know, several of us to go uh, take the metro, to, to go to protests and so on. And I spent uh, my first few years um, being involved in anti-war activism. And a lot of that energy was also spent talking about the, you know, not just the evils of empire, but, but just uh, the inherent, you know, uh, malice or whatever you want to say about folks who are carrying that out, about folks in the military. You know, and, and just again, because I'd just seen Forrest Gump, you know, just being like, yes, they're all bad. We have to just, you know, so on and so forth. But then I had friends of mine that were joining the Marines, that were joining the Army. And after a couple of years, as they started coming back, I talked to them. I would see them in the streets. I realized how I was engaging in a lot of that same kind of demonizing. Um, where I, I was writing off the most power, some of the most powerful folks in terms of challenging empire itself. And so we started, we started working together with veterans. Uh, I worked with several folks in starting a group called Civilian Soldier Alliance, working with Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, veterans against the war. 
and we started to have um, uh, organizing gatherings around the country about how to raise the, you know, the concerns around what was happening uh, within the military as a way to also push back against our uh, imperialism. And I, one of the, the things that we did as one of our cohorts or, or convenings is we did an, an example called a step up, step back that imagine some folks may have done, may have done before. And we were, we were being facilitated by uh, folks of color, um, that, brilliant facilitators, uh, true leaders that I still look up to. And so we were doing the step up, step back in part because we wanted to challenge folks in, in the veteran community to recognize um, you know, how much other folks are also dealing with issues around trauma and so on. And what ended up happening is as we were doing that exercise, um, you know, have you, you know, have you ever been hungry? Um, have you not been able to keep a roof over your head? Um, have you experienced uh, trauma? Uh, you know, just to not get into too many specifics. And as we were asking this when before, what we ended up seeing is, um, you know, mostly folks of color, um, women and stuff being at, at the front. It was mostly the vets. <clears throat> and that left a huge mark on us because it, it pointed out just how much we're making assumptions of each other and also how much we can do if we recognize what that shared struggle was. So we then started to organize, um, uh, we started literally just having like punk shows and, and, and little potluck parties and stuff to raise money. We raised just $5,000. And with that, we had a network of veterans and about a dozen civilians and we just, took whatever money we could save up, and we just went to military bases, slept on the floor, would find a church uh, where we could stay at, and would go and, and go into the bases and talk to folks directly about what they're experiencing with military sexual trauma, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress. Through that, over the course of a year, we were able to, and organizing in about three different bases, we were able to successfully push for a stand-down training across the entire army on MST, TBI, and post-traumatic stress, and help with uh, raising some national uh, press and profiles about the, 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 the issues there. Um, that, it, that example really stood out with me over the years, and just like, you know, how much we're able to do when we don't just come together, but we also work through discomfort. You know, I, I, I think uh, many times we, we want to be around the circle of folks that already agree with us, and we lose so much of our power and so much of our insights when we do that. We, we were able to make some significant changes within the military with a handful of us when we worked across divisions. And that's been a lesson that's, that's stood out to me to this day. So then back here, you know, going back to Maryland, I started uh, getting involved in uh, local organizing efforts and uh, in particular started getting involved with this group, United Workers, and uh, through there connected with the Union Theological Seminary uh, and folks from the Poverty Initiative, some of the folks that were involved in some of the initial uh, steps around the Poor People's Campaign that's uh, continuing to this day. And that's when I started to get an even deeper sense of how important this was. Uh, there was this gathering that we had uh, in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, where we had uh, folks from um, different faith groups you know, you know, give testimony about ways in which we, we could be building power together. And this extremely simple cartoon that they shared 
just cemented my analysis uh, moving forward to this day, like almost 20 years later. And it was a cartoon that talked about the, um, the, the politics of scarcity to cover for the economics of abundance. And there's three dogs. There's a white dog and a black dog, and they're fighting over a bone. They're both hungry. And then there's another white dog with a mountain of bones just looking at them and encouraging them to keep fighting over that bone. And that's when I realized just that, again, just how true that is for us um, and also how much strength comes from us as a country when we realize that. That plantation politics has been with us since very close to, the, to since we got here, since before the country was started, when rich folks started to realize, oh snap, slaves are starting to talk to you know, indentured servants. They're starting to talk to each other. They're building power. We have to figure out how to divide them. And then that became more and more the rhetoric that we keep getting fed, but also helped to inform us about just how much power we had to push back on that over the course of history. So here in Frederick, what that led to is um, I started getting involved with United Workers and folks working on a healthcare campaign. We brought folks who were doctors, nurses, people who didn't have health insurance, undocumented people to talk together about how much our healthcare system was broken because of the fact that we were dividing ourselves up. You know, we had to make sure, no, 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 we need more bureaucracy to make sure that undocumented immigrants don't get access to healthcare. Sure, that means it's gonna be more expensive for all of us, but gosh darn it, we're gonna make sure somehow that makes it cheaper for all of us at the same time. Um, and, and, you know, and so as we would have these conversations, folks would realize just how much we were being set up. Um, through that network, I then ended up getting involved with um, you know, different organizing efforts and then eventually um, got involved with the ACLU of Maryland. This, uh, when I was working in philanthropy, uh, again, because I was doing this organizing and then I got married, and as soon as I got married, about a week later, my wife was like, hey, you know what's great? A salary. Um, <laughs> you should consider it. Uh, so, um, but I still wanted to be involved in the work, so I got involved in philanthropy. I worked for the Annie E. Casey Foundation. And, and through there, was, was able to see what it's like when you have a whole bunch of money and you know, how to support folks. And then when, um, when Freddie Gray was murdered by the police back in 2015 in Baltimore and we had an uprising, uh, we, uh, it was very, I was very, very grateful that I was in a position to where uh, I was in community with a lot of folks who were activists on the ground, myself, several friends, folks from West Baltimore that have been impacted, working on this for decades. And folks in the philanthropic network didn't have as many of those same connections. But I was able to help work, definitely not just myself, several other folks had the same convening uh, responsibility. But we all started talking with each other about, hey, we could be spending resources here and, and instead of just constantly thinking about the police. That led to some pretty significant investments that are going on to this day. But then when Trump got elected, uh, my, I had my first child, and I real and uh, and then I looked my child in the eye and I realized, hey, maybe just playing with some random person's money isn't enough. <laughs> uh, I have to make sure that my kid has you know uh, as is able to do as much as they can with their lives, and they realize that, that their parents were doing their part as well. So um, I got involved with the ACLU of Maryland and ended up becoming our first director of engagement and mobilization. 
one of the first things that I took on within that work, now we're a team of uh, six of us working in a team amongst uh, 30 of us across the entire affiliate across the state. One of the first things that I got involved with was here in Frederick uh, in helping to support the launch of a coalition of immigrants and allies to actively work to push back against anti-immigrant sentiment that had been uh, rampant within certain small aspects of the county. I wouldn't say it's a majority, but they had guns in the sheriff's office. So we realized <laughs> we really got to do something about this. Um, that was back in January 2018. Um, Mary several other folks, Carol, Juliana, uh, you know, Dave, so many people were involved in those initial conversations and continue to be involved to this day. And we've been able to accomplish quite a bit. Um, and again, explicitly because we have immigrants, black folks, white folks, um, you know, folks in institution, elected officials, people who don't believe that we should have a government, <laughs> all you know, coming together to figure out, well, with all that said, we still need to help each other out. You know, so what does that look like? Um, that has led to several victories. Um, just a couple that I want to highlight. It's, you know, since we got involved uh, together in 2018, we've been actively pushing back against the 287G program um, that uh, deputizes local law enforcement officers to serve as ICE agents. We successfully sued them, uh, both the RISE Coalition, along with the ACLU of Maryland, um, to have them stop uh, exploiting that program to where they were targeting people, saying broken taillights when there was no such thing, but they were brown, and asking them for their papers, trying to hold them there, hoping that ICE would come and pick them up. Um, we won that lawsuit, and, and the sheriff's office has since then ser seriously cut back on it. But it's still ongoing. We still need to end the program. Well, um, that victory also led to uh, awareness within uh, local government about ways to, you know, about the fact that like the community means business. So when COVID hit, we didn't even have to be that involved in organizing. The sheriff's office already knew that we were going to come you know, come after them, um, and they knew that they needed to, you know, make space for the detention center. Uh, and so one of the first things he did was shut down that partnership with ICE around having folks detained at, at the detention center, knowing that there'd be public pressure. Along with that too, we had a network of folks um, that were at the ready to help each other out when COVID hit. And again, so many of our leaders are undocumented, they pay taxes, but they did not, they did not get access to the relief funds. They did not get access to the stimulus checks. Dozens and dozens of members of the coalition did, myself included, and several folks here. And so what we did was we just, we pulled that money together and we were able to provide tens of thousands of dollars, I forget how much it was the first round, around $50,000 um, that went directly to our members and extended network to help make sure that they could keep, you know, keep a roof over their heads while they adjusted and so on. And through that, again, further built up strength on, and realize how much we can do when we're there for each other. That has continued to lead to several victories. Uh, most recently, um, just uh, actually, Reverend Carl was also instrumental in that. His testimony went a long way. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, the, the county and city came together to acknowledge the very real need um, and responsibility that, that the county has to provide a uh, community center and library for folks in the majority immigrant um, community over in West Frederick. And so that just got approved and is moving forward. 
Along with that now, too, our coalition is continuing to work not just on issues of immigration, but we've been able to you know, push for uh, establishment of a police accountability board. We're involved in uh, having folks that are literally this, just this uh, session testifying on the need to uh, move towards marijuana legalization and reparations and to, you know, get rid of voter searches. Um, and the work will continue. Um, I don't see us stopping anytime soon. Um, because again, there's, there's a lot to do. I would say, as I'm talking here, one of the things that I also want to point out is just how important faith is, particularly someone who still identifies as atheist, but as I'm in this room, I, <laughs> I think there's something here. Uh, you know, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and, and so, but the consistent way in which I've related to faith is having faith in people. Uh, and, if you're really serious about faith, you're going to have that faith tested. Mine is tested on the regular as well. It tends to happen more when it's folks in power. Um, you know, when it's people in elected office or that have a, whole, have a whole lot of money and can be making a difference but aren't. But then I also have to give them grace because I realize that it, I still have faith in them. And, and it's actually that they're going against the grain. You know, what the Reverend was saying earlier, we have all this societal pressure to make sure that we stay within our niche, that we protect whatever institution gives us a paycheck at the time, that um, you know, we protect whatever seems like stability to us, even though we know that leads to instability for so many people right next to us. But when we see that, we're able to have so many, so us push back, get victories, and be able to work together. I've seen so much of that here in Frederick over the last, at this point, like over a dozen years. Y'all are, are generally inspiring efforts across the state. We work uh, with uh, coalitions across the state and we've been more intentional about making sure that we're sharing best practices with each other. Uh, and y'all have a lot um, to, to share. And so I really encourage you to continue to be involved. I would not be a good organizer if I didn't have a call to action. So the two things that I would suggest is one, if you haven't yet, reach out to the Rise Coalition. They're on social media. You can um, you know, just uh, share a direct message. Someone uh, from the coalition can follow up. If you're an organization that wants to get involved, please do so. And then also within the ACLU of Maryland, we're having our lobby day coming up on, on Monday the 20th on President's Day if you want to come join us in Annapolis. Um, and so with that, I just, again, want to say thank you all for the invitation. Thank you all for the work that you keep doing. Thank you all for continuing to restore my faith. Um, and, and, uh, and yeah, keep pushing. It, 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 discomfort means that you're doing the right thing. If you're comfortable, you're just talking. <laughs> you know, like, like our values, if they're real, if they're liberatory values, they're not just going to be words. They will be action. They will be a challenge to ourselves and our daily lives. But our lives will be richer for it, both in an individual level and within our community. And I've seen that proven time and time again. So with that, thank you very much.